Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here. Len May, end of the NA. Heat guaranteed when you press in the play. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. I'm super, super, super grateful to have my brother, my very good friend, Brian Chaplin is our guest. Welcome. Thank you, Len. <laughs> it's good to be here today. Nice to see you. You too, man. You too. Yeah. It's been a while with this whole COVID. I think we have COVID, right? Is that what's going on? It's hard yeah, for people to see each other. Something like that. <laughs> the vid. The vid. So we're just... World's falling apart. Yeah. Well, you know, fires, all that stuff. Um, before we go into jumping into many different things, I have ADD, so I'm going to be all over the place and probably as well. <laughs> so uh, the one thing that we we're talking about is I like to wear, you know, my, my sort of music t-shirts and stuff uh, all the time. And I was trying to figure out what shirt to wear for you. Uh, Cause you're a music guy. And uh, um, so I have like all these choices and I have my house and chains. I'm like, ah, maybe too much Seattle. Let's go with a maiden. Uh, maybe it's too heavy. I wasn't sure. So what happened was last year, I got tickets for uh, the Black Crows and Guns N' Roses. So Guns N' Roses were supposed to play at the, uh, the new Bank of America football stadium. And the uh, Crows are playing wherever. But I've seen Guns N' Roses in the last whatever many years, like six times, even in Barcelona at Olympic Stadium. Amazing. Great. The Crows, I haven't seen at least 15 years. First, they, I think they've been broken up for like 10 uh, and hated each other. And uh, so I'm, uh, since I made a decision, oh, so going forward, they rescheduled the concert for Guns N' Roses and Black Crows on the same day. So tonight is Guns N' Roses and Black Crows. I had to make a decision which one I'm going to go to. Uh, Very, very difficult decision. I love both bands, but I made the decision to see the Crows just because it's been so long. So anyway, the shirt that I'm wearing, is a Chris Robinson Brotherhood uh, because I didn't want to wear my, 
Len, <laughs> you mentioned Guns N' Roses, one of my favorite bands, you know, Appetite yeah. for Destruction. Yes. Uh, David Geffen, Geffen Records. David Geffen mm-hmm. was brilliant when he uh, picked up GNR and got Welcome to the Jungle to play on that thing that we used to watch videos on, a TV, but MTV. <laughs> you remember that, everybody? MTV, Slightly. music, television. <laughs> but Welcome to the Jungle only played after hours, like in the in middle of the night. But Geffen's genius was like, he called down at MTV and he's like, just play this on primetime. And Welcome to the Jungle uh, was played at primetime MTV. And that was, you know, essentially what gave uh, GNR their liftoff in the early days. But let me show you something real quick. Show me. While, while he's doing that, I... And yeah, I mean, Slash, uh, Jimmy Page inspired me to get this, but uh, Slash also has the yeah. uh, Sunburst Orange, um, Les Paul. This is an Epiphone version. I bought this when I was 15 years old, uh, saving money from shoveling driveways, raking leaves, and selling uh, blow pops, uh, popsicles yeah. to my classmates for a quarter. I'd pick up uh, a box, which is a hundred count uh, of blow pops for seven bucks, and I'd make a net profit of $18. So yeah. hard work pays off. This shows me hard work. It does, man. That's beautiful. I, I, it's so funny you mentioned Appetite for Destruction. I actually have in my room, I have uh, these records displayed. Like uh, records have meant something in my life, and uh, appetite for destruction is uh, on my wall. So one, uh, one of you know, there's many albums that you can play from start to finish, very loud, yeah, and without skipping a beat. Appetite for destruction is one of those albums where you just play from the first second to the last second, and then probably repeat it just because there's so many just badass rock songs on there agreed man but shake your money maker like their crows have great albums too so mm-hmm. but yeah it was it was a really hard choice to make but i decided to go see the crows well i hope your choice you know pans out for you i saw the black crows in high school probably i think in 96 back in new hampshire they played at the university of new hampshire mm-hmm. and what i remember of them was that was like when shake your money maker was you know hitting the the yeah. charts and they were blasting off, but they were loud. Yeah. They just turned it up to 11 and the, <laughs> the brothers, they just play those guitar and those marshals uh, and the Gibson through those, those marshals yeah. loud, really loud. Yeah. So loud is fine. I, Guns and Roses is pretty loud uh, too. So the loudest show that I've ever been to, I think was a really weird show. It was a very small venue in LA and I went to see Jack White play. And uh, he played like with a band, not Rock and Tours, not the White Stripes, just Jack White and his band. But what he did was he's got um, effects, the guitar effects, the pedal effects. But what he did was between songs, he let the noise sort of keep going and he didn't turn off the effect. I came out of the show and my friend was talking to me for an hour. I couldn't hear anything. I just heard it's like wearing headphones and somebody's got to speak really, really loud. Like, I think it permanently affected my hearing, that show. <laughs> and I've been like Metallica, you name it, like Megadeth, uh, heavy, heavy shows in front of me. But that one, like the frequency and the pitch, I think it did something in my hearing. Jack White is a genius musician. 
Yes, he is. Genius guitar, man. I'm I'm looking over your left shoulder there, and one of my all-time favorite albums is Led Zeppelin II. That's my favorite album, probably. Definitely my favorite Zeppelin album, but uh, one of my favorite albums as well. And that one, too. Oh, so that man. track and, and John Paul Jones' bass line in that is just beyond its time. Such an underrated bass player. Yeah. And musician. And musician all around. Absolutely. He played the oh. mandolin on Going to California. Yeah. He played uh, organ, keys. Uh, what else? The, the bass. Just a genius. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we jumped right into it. Maybe you can tell people a little bit about yourself. <laughs> and then we'll go back into music and stuff. Yeah. Well, Brian Chaplin hailing from uh, North Lake Tahoe, California, here on the North Shore. Uh, I always like to say Washu tribe territory. That is the uh, indigenous tribes people that um, where my house is settled in. Uh, it's a beautiful sunny day. Uh, we were talking earlier that you know, we've been socked in with all the smoke from the surrounding fire. So, yeah. uh, you know, blessings and a lot of compassion for the people that are, you know, evacuated and, and losing their homes. Um, some people uh, in our network of, of friends have lost their homes or their families have lost their homes. So uh, grateful to be able to not have to evacuate. And just if I have to deal with some um, smoky uh, air, I can handle it. I was down in L.A., uh, two less than two weeks ago, and the air quality down there was actually better than here in Tahoe. And it's wow. I'm usually <laughs> racing to get back to Tahoe to the mountain air. But uh, yeah, I've been in California for um, 19 years. Next month, uh, <clears throat> born and raised in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. 80s kid, you know, 80s 90s kid. So, but pre cell phone era, and grateful for that because nature has always been a big part of my life and mm-hmm. growing up in the woods in New Hampshire, I had a father that not only instilled in me all the music we just talked about, uh, but also showed me how to play guitar, uh, ski, and then really appreciate nature and what nature mm-hmm. has to to offer. So uh, dad, if you're listening, love you, man. Um, and moved to Tahoe in 2002 after uh, graduating from the University of Vermont with a environmental studies degree because that was how I was able to go to a school, study something that I enjoyed, but really to be able to ski close by at Stowe, Vermont and uh, listen to a lot of great music. Burlington, Vermont is a great music town. So um, those are all, you know, kind of the nature um, music and, uh, you know, skiing and, and, and things of that what brought you out to Tahoe? Like why, why Tahoe? Had yeah, place? Tahoe, that, all of that kind of brought me out to Tahoe. It was um, my parents met here in uh, the 70s on, on the west shore of Tahoe. And so I call it my spawn of consciousness. They, they spent, they're together for, married for 42 years. She's uh, in like five days. It's their 42nd anniversary. So, and I'm, I'm 41. So they, when I started to trace this back, they met, uh, they lived out here until like late 78. And then I was born January of 1980. So essentially I call that my spawn of consciousness where all that love they had for each other and they moved back to the East coast, uh, out came Brian, but I had heard of Tahoe 
growing up. And mind you, this is before cell phones and the internet. So it was this, it created this like magical enchanted world in my, in my head that uh, I always knew I was going to move here. And I moved here to ski. That, that was really it. I moved here to ski right. at Squaw Valley and mm-hmm. coming up on two decades of skiing there. So very cool. Yeah. Um, so I, I like your whole approach to, uh, uh, nature and your connection with nature and, and plants and everything else. How did you get into cannabis? Uh, how did that even come about? Yeah. Well, to give some context to that and ride out this spawn of consciousness of, mm-hmm. of what brought me to Tahoe and, and learning about this place through my dad. Um, my dad, the first time I ever smelled cannabis was when I went downstairs in the basement and my dad was with his friends playing guitars, smoking things. And I was like, you know, <laughs> swimming through the smoke. And then years later, when I smelled it again with my friends, I was like, that's what dad was doing down there. But uh, my dad was, you know, kind of the guy that would smoke with his friends. And, and then he'd tell me stories of smuggling hash back in Spain when he was in the service. <laughs> and I think that, you know, has some credibility to coming up through the traditional marketplace and prop 215 and, and being mm-hmm. someone that has taken some big risks. And, you know, some people have said, you're an OG. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> the multi-generations before me don't even say that just yeah. because you just started in 2018, 2019 <laughs> doesn't make the guy that started in 09 and OG. So right. uh, cannabis was always this kind of like thing that was around in my my life and my my dad would plant it in the in the cornrows in our garden and mm-hmm. you know there's be triple beam scales in the, the basement and he'd have you know a few pounds around for his friends but um again i think it was planted in my consciousness that um cannabis was going to be a thing and for my you know something to pursue in 2009 i was living in the bay area and went out to oakland uh, with some friends and those friends were starting a indoor grow space. Mm-hmm. This was in 2009 and they didn't have any money to mm-hmm. build, build out a 2000 square foot indoor warehouse. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't know why we were there. And then I was privy to it and I was like, I have some money. And they're like, dude, you're a broke dick. You don't have any money. You're living <laughs> on the couch. You're on unemployment. Like this was like some really challenging times of my life going through addiction and alcoholism. And, and I, I did have money. I had all these unused credit cards back in like the early mid two thousands when creditors were just like, here's more credit for you. Here's, you know, cash advances. And I used like $60,000 of unused credit cards to build out a 25 light indoor grow room. And that's how I learned. I just went for it. And, uh, that was, we ran that from like 09 to 2011. And then I moved back to Tahoe and um, took some of the money I had and started some, you know, working in greenhouse and light depth and full season. And it just evolved over time. And as I started to um, be a bit more aware of my own life and where I wanted to go and uh, open up to different ways of, of living and creating lifestyle, uh, cannabis was just always just a, a big factor in my life and it still is. And it's just keeps 
evolving. I keep learning and keep meeting great people like yourself. And um, yeah, just one of those things I think a lot of people can relate to that have been in this world for five, 10, 15, 20 years. It just mm-hmm. kind of happens and then it just takes a life of its own. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the different uh, way to grow up because uh, my parents were the opposite. Like cannabis is like heroin. They they just didn't know any better until I got a chance to smoke a joint with my dad when he was in his mid seventies. <laughs> that was the first, and he was like, "Okay, that's it." I was like, "Yeah, that's that really is it." You know, it's not uh, it's not like uh, you know sticking a needle in your arm or anything. Like that. Yeah. Um, Going back, you, you mentioned something. So uh, depending on what your comfort level is, uh, what can you share about addiction and uh, your, uh, you know, your own experiences and maybe whatever you're mm-hmm. comfortable in sharing? Yeah, thanks. Well, I'm very comfortable about sharing because it's been part of my story and it's been such a big part of my story that I've been able to use it to create the brand that I founded, Medicine Box, and uh, the the mentorship and consultations that I like to do with other people that are looking to live a more sober lifestyle. Um, addiction is a hellish place. It's a lonely place. It's an isolated place. Uh, and there is a way out of that place. And it really stems from unresolved traumas. A lot of what I've discovered on this, I'm coming up on nine years of sobriety without, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol. I do use plant medicine. I, I do use cannabis. I do use psilocybin and peyote and San Pedro cactus. That's maybe park that for another conversation. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it started young at 14 years old. I, when I took my first drink and I blacked out the first time I drank and my wow. dad was like, I, hopefully that, you know, was enough for you to learn your lesson. And I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. And, um, over time it just builds up. It's a, it's a pretty nasty progression and it becomes fun. And then it's fun with problems. And then it's just all problems and your life is pretty catastrophic. And I actually started cultivating cannabis while I was very active in, in my addictions. And it was just like, ah, but this is just going to be some extra money to fund my party habit. I used to always think uh, I was just the party guy and all my friends party. And that's what everyone did. And I thought everyone just lived that life. And some things just started to click where good friends of mine would say, yo, man, you should put it in check. Like, you think you have a problem? No. And the fingers would point back and forth. And, um, yeah, it was 2012 and, uh, it was just probably for the 2000th time of, Hey, I'm going to go out for one drink, you know, any previous alcoholic or addict that really can't manage their intake knows this story. Well, I'm going out for one drink and then it's two days later. And it was two days later and just looking around and feeling helpless and soulless and just kind of surrendered to that very moment and walked next door to my neighbors and said, I need help. I had met him six months prior and he, uh, I invited him upstairs to drink some beers with me. (laughs) 
He's like, no, I've been sober for like 27 years, but thanks. And just the way he said it, that was with zero judgment, complete humility, and a lot of compassion in his being. And I remembered that. And that was the most courageous point in my life where I just walked next door and I, I literally like knocked on his door and three little words, I need help. And he said, yeah. you've come to the right place. And uh, almost nine years later, next September 9th will be nine years. But um, it was quite a journey unpacking you know, 18 years of drinking and, and using. Like at that point, I drank and used uh, more than half of my life since I was born, you know, 14 yeah. to 32 18 years. And, you know, we always say that it's like, I'm about halfway in, you know, I went into the woods, the deep, dark woods without any light for 18 years. And I've been walking back out and I see a little bit of light nine years later, I get about another nine years to go to come out of the woods, but Mm. I certainly learn a lot through that journey. And, uh, it's been quite interesting. Yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> thank you for sharing that story. I think it's really important for people to to know and hear, and, and it's very brave. And congratulations for uh, you know your your sobriety of nine years. It's interesting to hear and uh, these stories because I talk to people all the time about their genetic predispositions, right? And that's something that I, I focus on. We look at you know alcohol dependence genes and this. Uh, uh, you know, stimulant-dependence uh, genes like cocaine and, and even cannabis-dependent genes. There are uh, some people, it's rare, but, you know, some people do uh, have so dependencies and there's an interaction between a bunch of those. But it's it's interesting how, you know, I can have a drink and then, uh, you know, four of us get together, we're all drinking and maybe one of us has this genetic predisposition and it gets triggered and you end up blacking out while I'm like, yeah, hey, you know what, I, I got a nice buzz on and, and that's it, I can take it or leave it. So it's uh, understanding your genetic predispositions, I think, helps people navigate uh, through their experiences a little bit more as well. I was curious about what is the, what is the view of 12-step uh, programs? What is their view on cannabis? Cannabis is a drug, um, according to the 12-step programs. However, a lot of the, the people in, that I have met over the years through the 12-step community are starting to look outside those rooms for other healing modalities in the plant medicine world, in mm-hmm. the psychedelic world, you know, mm-hmm. microdosing. And of course, that's all anonymous. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many people I know that still attend 12-step recovery, but still they use cannabis. You know, a lot of mm-hmm. women I know that are uh, in the 12-step recovery program use cannabis to help with their menstrual cramps. Right. Um, or anxiety. And I just spoke to a doctor uh, yesterday on a, on a podcast and she asked me a similar question mm-hmm. and it was, uh, you know, cannabis is still viewed as a drug. And I think it's been so stigmatized over so many years that <clears throat> because it's not, it's pretty cut and dry. It's not federally legal. It's still a schedule one drug. So it must be bad. Right. It's bad. But what four years in, Len, when I started to, this cloud started to lift and I started to be more aware and discerning with what I'd see, 
I'd be in those rooms. I'm forever grateful for the 12 step program. They, they cast the net out to me and they brought me into the boat and we started to sail across the lake. But when we got across the lake, they're like, well, you can't quite get off yet, Brian, because if you do, there's a big, bad, gnarly world out there and you have to stay with us. And that was when I started to question, like, I have so many other tools and there's so much more available to us now to continuously dive deep into healing. And I started to see uh, in those rooms, a lot of people uh, speaking about their injuries. We live in Tahoe, everyone skis and recreates and we're, we're getting busted up all the time, you know, blown out backs and necks and knee injuries and things of that nature. And uh, you go to the doctor and they prescribe you Oxycontin or Vicodin or Percocets, or you go and you have anxiety and you're on Xanax and uh, um, Prozac and Zoloft. You can't sleep because of the anxiety and you're on Ambien. Now it's like, wait, how how are we getting away with this? But cannabis is bad. And I started to pay way more attention and be a little bit more analytical and some of these people, they'd have 10 years of sobriety and they'd be prescribed, you know, an oxy for a knee injury operation. Mm. And then a glass of vodka sounded really good 30 days in to yeah. really kick that oxy into overdrive. And 10 years of sobriety goes out the window. So that was kind of the be- very beginnings of me mapping out what I call the, the brand medicine box. It was, yeah. it's, it's really metaphorical for a large um, tool toolbox of medicine and you can just keep adding to it and taking things out that don't work, add more into it. And at one point in my life, 12 steps was the only tool that I had. It yeah. was the tool in the toolbox. Now the 12 step recovery program is a tool. It's like my go-to those steps. It's very grounded in very, what I call pragmatic spirituality. It's very mm-hmm. pragmatic. Like, Take inventory, apologize when you're wrong, pay it forward, spread the message, have a conscious contact with the higher power, take consistently take inventory, surrender, and and stay in relation with community. And it doesn't have to be this woo woo woo, you know, so far out to reach spiritual enlightened views. And it always brings me back to kind of a center of of uh, humility. And this is a great fact that I always like to speak about, about the 12 step program. It started in 1937, the founder, Bill W and Bill W was blessed enough to get that spiritual awakening that many don't, right? The 12 step program is it's easy to stop drinking and using. It's the other things we need to change. The people, places, things, the, the boundaries, the humility, the compassion, uh, all of that. And he really desperately wanted people to have that spiritual awakening. And he took LSD in a clinical setting in 1957. And he had a profound spiritual experience. And he actually wanted to start uh, utilizing LSD in the 12-step program. But this was in 1957, like right around when any psychedelic research was put to a screeching halt, right? And they're like, he was radical. It was a radical idea. And a lot of the, uh, you know, founders and important people in the early days of AA were like, Bill can't do that. But now we're seeing this resurgence in psychedelic research and yep. the psychedelic 
you know, renaissance come forward. And uh, I think that's a really important fact to get across because of the stories that we just, let's just keep those buried. We yeah. don't want too many people to know that. So, um, you know, we're starting to see more and more people look outside those rooms. I know there's 12 step programs for uh, people who use psychedelics. And then of course there's, you know, the label of like Cali sober, it's like <laughs> cannabis. And I'm not really into the labels. It's like, whatever works for you. Like if you want to yeah. go and to the next Megadeth concert and go on tour with Megadeth <laughs> and bang your head because that's going to keep you sober or bang your head against the wall or climb trees, whatever it is, as long as you're staying sober and being a good person, I think that's a good win for humanity. Yeah. I, I think the definition of drugs is, uh, is so interesting because you know, you can, what about caffeine? What about sugar? Yeah, I, to me, I mean, cannabis is a drug. There's a there's a there's a neurochemistry that's excreted and changed. So it's a drug like a lot of other things are drugs. Except uh, I don't think we have too many alcohol receptors in our, in our bodies, uh, but we do have uh, you know some some endogenous uh, endocannabinoids, as, as you know. But I, I really like the fact of. Giving people choices, especially looking at all the research that's going on, and, and it's been going on. You know, cannabis has been stifled for uh, for years, and we understand why. There's uh, there's definitely political reasons around that. But I think the industry and the lobbying and uh, us in the, in the cannabis space and, and the people that came before us, we started showing a path and a, a sort of a roadmap where the psychedelic or psychotropic industries kind of moving into and leveraging the legalities that are in place now for things like ketamine and then conducting research studies, uh, uh, different organizations like MAPS, et cetera, are doing a great job on that. And it, it is a new old frontier. Uh, so we don't have to go back and uh, and follow the paths as laid before us, but there is a tremendous amount of science. And if whatever works for you, uh, I think works for you. And if uh, it came from plants, I think, uh, you know, I think it's even better. Uh, you mentioned, you know, OGs, and I get that stuff all the time too. But to me, you know, we stand on the shoulders of people who came before us. And there's people who are now, you know, in the cannabis industry and, and this, uh, you know, alternative healing industry. And I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who laid the the groundwork for that. I uh, just wanted to have you tell us and uh, and our audience a little bit about Michael Hollister and and guys like Wade Laughter. I'd love for you to sort of talk about them because to me, you know, those uh, when you talk about predecessors and OGs, uh, you know, that's those are names. Some of the names that come to mind. And uh, yeah, I, I had a feeling that was going to come up. I brought a little tear to my eye. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, OGs, you know, original gangsters or whatever. I, I, you think of OGs as our elders and our culture is so disjointed and we're so far removed from, from nature and our lineage as, as humans. And a lot of people I meet, they don't even know where their, you know, grandparents came from. Len, I, I know your story and my story. My grandfather was born in East Boston, um, or sorry, the north end of Boston, his, his parents emigrated from Sicily. So, you know, having that, uh, that direct lineage to our elders uh, as family is, 
huge. And I, th- I think people need to get back in, in touch with that. So we know where we, we, we came from and that's part of our DNA. It's part of our consciousness as well as the respect for OGs or elders that have left an imprint on the people that we are in the world and uh, pay mad respect to elders. And uh, there's a lot of entitlement that goes on in this world right now. There's a super sense of entitlement. People walk around that think everything is so deserving to them without having any hard work or challenges in their life. And there's, you know, there's all this resentment of oppression and all, all the different social justice issues and anti-social justice. And that is, uh, this got me really processing and, and diving deep into like, okay, what, what has made me the person I am today and, and what have I learned and how do I pay respect to the people that I've learned from? And we've all had mentors and teachers and Michael Hollister was one of mine. He was the one that really turned my world around with cannabis medicine and 54 years in the cannabis space working with the plant. And he died three years ago on the strawberry full moon at the age of 73 uh, from cancer. And I got to spend the last three years of his life with him, really learning a lot about everything he knew about the plant. And I, we probably just learned, it was probably taught just a smidge and you met him. Yeah. And Michael uh, showed me the importance of what he called a recovery model. And that is even coming more into focus. Like some of his teachings, he dropped on me years ago, six, seven years ago. Uh, they have an aha moment. I'm like, oh, the recovery model. That's what I'm, that's what he'd always be. Medicine box is a recovery model, meaning using medicinal cannabis to help people recover from something that we're all recovering from something. It doesn't have to be drugs and alcohol. It can be trauma, physical, you know, mood imbalances, uh, anything, you know, psychological uh, of that nature. And Michael, uh, started working with, uh, CBD, um, in the early 2000s when he quit being a registered nurse in Massachusetts because he saw the overuse and misuse of pharmaceuticals, uh, typically SSRIs and benzos. And uh, it really disheartened him. And he moved from the East Coast back to uh, Humboldt and started working with you know Martin Lee and uh, Lawrence Ringo and the, the early... 2000s when CBD was now getting bred back into the cannabis plant, right? It was Martin Lee Project CBD. Project CBD, yeah. So uh, it was getting, it got bred out to have these high THC strains. And as we we know in the cannabis world is like, the more of one thing you have, the less of something else you have. And those guys really put kind of the CBD back on the map, the hemp industry, has really, or CBD world has really taken that over again. And Michael called that out. He said, you know, when I'm gone, Brian, watch what's going to happen. He goes, hemp is just going to make one whole sector. It's just going to be CBD isolate derived from hemp, but always stick to the plant, the plant, the whole plant, and nothing but the plant. That's one thing that Michael would always teach me. And and the importance of full spectrum and, and, and whole plant medicinals. And then really what 
made me a true believer in entheogens and, and plant medicine. And plant medicine doesn't have to be ayahuasca, peyote, all the, you know, kind of esoteric plant medicines, you know, coffee, you mentioned coffee, that's plant medicine to me, tea, mm -hmm. you know, your chamomile tea is plant medicine. So just to kind of bring it down into a humble space. Uh, he showed me how to blend cannabinoid ratios and terpene profiles and specific mm -hmm. ratios, just like a bartender would make your margarita, right? Your margarita is two ounces of tequila, one ounce of triple sec or sugar water and some agave and a half ounce of lime like that lime right the i think of i was a bartender but i think the cannabinoids are like the the foundation of a formulation and then the terpene profile is that navigational system where rafael mashulam calls it the quintessential fifth element life force that's the navigational system where the lime and the tequila right when you sip that margarita you smell the lime, it opens up your olfactories. It's kind of like providing uh, you with a little bit of stimulation and, yeah. and excitement. And that's limonene, right? Yeah. And so Michael really showed me how to blend plant compounds in specific ratios and then not stay limited to just the cannabis plant. He was grabbing compounds from the botanical world all around him that he learned mm -hmm. studying with. Uh, Jamie Sams of the, an elder of the Sioux tribe of Navajo nation. Michael was also the um, mediator for 17 native American tribes through the sacred seed project. So the man knew a lot about plants and he knew a lot about soil uh, growing. And another thing that he really taught me was uh, you know, one of the slogans with medicine box is from soil to oil. It's not just because it rhymes and it's a catchy phrase, but it was uh feed the soil, not the plant and make sure the root zone or the rhizosphere, the thin layer of soil, four inches of soil that has all the mycelium and the fungal and bacterial components in that exchange of oxygen that the plants are just absorbing up that the, the healthier that is, the better the medicine that comes out of the plant's going to be. So the better the formulation that is going to be made to be used for your patient or end consumer. So, right. All of those, just those little shifts in perspective, Len, was like paramount to me being his student, where at that time, I was growing a F-ton of weed. You know, I was like, the only thing I was growing was like my marketing plan, and I joke around, was like, how many turkey bags are filled with 454 grams at the end of the year? Like, yeah. that's it. And OG, I, OG was the oh, yeah. big seller then. It's right? OG. I became, <laughs> yeah, I became uh, unsatiated doing that. And mm -hmm. I met Michael through the universe, just kind of like threw him at me. I, I had been talking to two guys that wanted to get into extraction and they were in Colorado. And uh, they'd always talk about this old school hermit breeder up in Humboldt. And they had never met him, but he was like the geneticist, the genetics guy. And those guys just like vanished. I stopped hearing from him. And I didn't think anything of it. And I got a text message one day that said, hey, I'll be in uh, Woodland. The hell is Woodland? It's like outside of Sacramento, you know, like for lunch. Uh, would you like to meet me? 
uh, I got your number from Colin and Quinn and I, that property I was at barely had any cell service ever. And I saw the text and I just wrote, yes, sure. And I did it in my whole world. Just in that one conversation, he was that profound on the way he talked and the information that he put forth that you could tell there was something deep in uh, a deep innate wisdom with him yeah. in him that he needed to get out. And through there in Nevada County, um, I met Wade Laughter and, and Wade uh, bred the uh, Har- um, Harlequin, Harlequin uh, yeah. CB- CBD strand uh, nine to one. Yeah. And I you know for any of your listeners, you know, there's a lot of people like CBD, 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 that a lot of that's derived from hemp, industrially grown hemp, which yeah. they use the, the roots, the stalk, the stems, everything they squeeze it and squeeze it down and just get a little bit out to get their isolate but there's actually uh, plenty of great genetics in the cannabis the cousin of hemp that has uh direct proportions of cbd to thc like one to ones three to ones four to ones nine to ones twelve to ones twenty ones twenty four michael bred a thirty to one yeah the formulation we made was a thirty four to one uh CBD to THC with the beautiful terpene infusion. So, uh, yeah, and it was great sitting around the table with Michael and and Wade. Those, they're the OGs. Exactly. Yeah. They were OGs. You know, they're throwing Martin Lee around, and yeah. as I'm crying, you know, thinking about Michael, I saw witnessed Wade cry yeah. uh, talking about Martin Lee. They were great friends, and uh, you know those. Those guys, we need to pay a lot of respect to the, the men and women that, that risked their lives up in, up in Humboldt, Mendocino, Emerald Triangle, Nevada County, yeah. to get to I'll, where we're at today so we can talk about it freely and broadcast yeah. this thing out on media. No, it's crazy. It's how, how far we've come <clears throat> and paying homage and respect to the people. You, you said it right. And the other thing that you pointed out, which I'm really glad you pointed out, the whole thing with CBD, because you, you think about it. The original plants were designed with ratios already built in. If you even think about the original, you know, like Charlotte's Web, uh, they talk about that wasn't a 0.3% hemp derived, uh, you know, CBD with stems and stalks and everything else. It's a plant that you get the flower from, you cultivate it for a purpose. And the government arbitrarily created this. Well, you know what? It's 0.3% THC or else it's not. Well, who the hell came up with that and why? It's still a therapeutic plan, and we're losing that. So, yeah, what's the difference between cannabis and hemp? A decimal point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we just made it up. So, speaking of uh, Nevada County, uh, I don't know how. I don't even know where that is or, or not, but I'll ask you anyway because you had a court uh, case there, and you had some uh, challenges in the in the cultivation space that you're in that I think uh, I've uh, may have visited also. Uh, so, what? What was whatever happened with that, or what can you even talk about it? Still in discovery. It's been in November. Uh, it's been four years since the raid wow. happened. Yeah. Uh, Attorney Joe Elford um, is my general counsel. He was the general counsel for Americans of Safe Access, representing 130,000 patients. The, the guy knows what he's talking about, he knows what he's doing, he knows cannabis case law. And um, we've been actively uh, fighting or advocating 
for this. And it's gone on for quite some time because uh, opposing counsel, uh, let's see how to say this. So, well, um, so let, let's, let's fall back for a second because yeah, some so what happened was, happened, yeah, you got, my farm got raid, raided. It was a raid, right? Okay. Yeah. So the context is I was a board member of the Nevada County Cannabis Alliance. Nevada County, Grass Valley, Nevada City, it's about uh, an hour and 10 minutes northeast of Sacramento. Mm. So in the foothills of the Sierra Mountains, mm. an hour from Tahoe. Great growing region, great growing climate. And in 2017, it was right before 2018 when adult use in California was going to be uh, legalized. And the Alliance was the advocacy group that acted as the conduit between growers and uh, operators that were pursuing a legal path and the supervisors and the regulators within the county. I was a board member there. Forced Herd was a board member. Um, the no, Monica, sorry, uh, Wade's, Wade's wife. And... Uh, there was CAG meetings, community advisory group meetings um, that summer where the lawmakers, sheriffs, citizens of the county all met and we basically hashed out what a fr legal framework was going to look like. And my fellow board members, Brian, you have to get up there and give your two minute. They give us two minutes for 30 the, the last 30 minutes of the three-hour uh, conversation or meeting was up for uh, uh, conversation. So I went up there, and I just was like laid it out. I was like, we all need to like work together. You know, I'm happy to talk to whoever I need to talk to, and this isn't as bad as we make it out to be. And 36 hours later, the sheriffs were pounding on my gate. I wasn't there. Uh, my friend was. And, um, yeah, called the sheriffs and I was like, compliance check. This is in November. What are they doing in November? The farm is down. Like, it's pretty obvious. They put a bullseye on my back and, uh, I called and I said, I'll meet you out there on Monday and we'll do a walk around the property. The property was cleared out. It was, so we spent the weekend just buffing the property out. So that was Thursday. The meeting was Tuesday. Okay. Thursday morning, they were at my property. 36 hours after that, I get a phone call from another property of mine that said, we just got robbed. And five men in tactical SWAT gear posing as sheriffs um, broke into the property with AR-15s and held up five people, four people that were at the house trimming and manicuring the harvest. Tied them out, hog tied them put pillowcases over the head. It was pretty traumatic for them. So that was the, where I decided my fate. I was like, my gut Len, was like, they know, I know if I don't say anything, if I don't call for the sheriffs to protect and serve me to get the guys that are posing as them, this could go unravel even further. And I called and that was, some people might say, why'd you do that? Others are like, damn, dude, that's a lot of balls. But I think I did the right thing in that way because 
we are advocating, you know, I like, I'm an advocate as well for the plan and the sheriffs came and instead of looking for the robbers, they flipped a script on me and said that I was the criminal cannabis cultivator and they didn't even look for, didn't even look for the, the guys posing as authorities and harassed the, the people working on the property. And, uh, you know, they went, they falsified a search warrant and slipped it under the, the judge's nose at two in the morning and, uh, chopped down a greenhouse, broke into the, the drying shed and, and stole I say stole because that's essentially what they did and didn't prove how they disposed of it. And there's a lot of whole, there's a lot of gaps in the story that we've been trying yeah. to put together and it's been on going on for about three years. I actually just yesterday sent over to my attorney, my medical records because the opposing attorney's like, does he have medical records as a medical, I mean, HIPAA laws, right? There's HIPAA laws, but you know what? Here's my medical records. Here's yeah. the, the, the cannabis doctor I used to go to, and here's my primary physician. And uh, it's getting to that point. And um, they've changed, uh, the county council has changed attorneys four times now. Wow. That goes to show something. But I've learned a lot through the process. I'm looking forward to getting it done. And I'd like to uh, knock on wood wrap this up by the end of the year and, and chalk this off as a win for the cannabis plant. That, yeah. That's what I see. Yeah. I'm so glad you told that story in that because <clears throat> I had an experience when I used to have shops where uh, we got raided by the local police department. I'm not going to mention which county or where, uh, but the raid was like this. Uh, it was just employees. There was no managers. They told everybody stand outside they took all the cannabis from the jars because this is a you know prop two fifteen uh, time. All the cannabis was in the jars. They took all the money from registers and they took a flat screen TV off the wall. That was it. There was nobody got arrested. Nothing. So it was a pure uh, robbery uh, at that point. <laughs> so what are you gonna? I couldn't call the cops. So uh, we just all right. You know, we started actually a nonprofit um, for a while. We were given donations. To local uh, police department. So that kind of stopped for a while. But it's funny, not funny, but it's interesting because, you know, like my daughter, for instance, she's going to hear this and she's going to be like, what? Because it's legal like that. I thought it's legal. What, do you, what is going on? And like, a, you know, within the next five years, hopefully, this is going to be like old history. Like we talk about prohibition days. Oh my God. <laughs> I hope I've I've been, talked about that before with people. Is like well, we're going to look back on this and be like, "What are you all talking about?" Like that was a, it was illegal. People got arrested for this. People went to jail. People lost their homes and broke up families. And it's just crazy when you look at the the amount of like social complications that this one plant has caused and social injustice. Oh, and it's crazy. Divisions of communities. And it's such a, it's such a uniting plant too, which is such an irony. And, you know, it, when I went to Atalanta the first time, they, I remember they were one of the first like places that got legal cultivation licenses. So all these big cultivators started growing there. So you pull into Atalanta in California and it smells like weed. Even though they had filtration systems, it still smells like weed. But there's a prison there. 
And there's people sitting there in prison for the plant that's legally growing outside and they're sitting there smelling that. What kind of torture is that for people? It's crazy. Yeah, that that's that's just wrong. I, I like what Steve and Andrew D'Angelo are doing with Last Prisoner Project. And we're, we're working on structuring a partnership with uh, Last Prisoner Project uh, with Medicine Box to be that's able excellent. to yeah give back to... Uh, that cause and and be as socially responsible as we can as cannabis operators and uh, of course being you know as uh, environmental stewards too and right. like you said uh, cannabis is such a uniting plant or compound yeah. and and it brings communities together and brings people together and it brings people back in touch with themselves because it's such a introspective mm-hmm. experience and spiritually expansive where Drugs, alcohol, uh, cocaine, alcohol, those are the things that I enjoyed uh, a little too much, but very spiritually restricting. Yeah, and, no, exactly. It's, and, and they stimulate, with plant medicine, you, 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 they're stimulating your neurochemicals and depends on which neurochemicals are stimulated for the effect, like cocaine, you know, you have all dopamine and all this rush of dopamine and it protects and blocks the reuptake of that dopamine. So you have it constantly and then you crash, you need more. So it's not a, a plant, it's it's not a substance that that is this uniting introspective like, a, a, you know, psilocybin would be, etc. So I'm putting everything in, in one bucket. You have this this bucket over here that's plant medicine that has a different neurochemistry that's stimulated versus uh, these substances over here, uh, which are all, you know, if if you're consuming them responsibly, even even cocaine. I mean, there are uses of cocaine if uh, you're using it responsibly, uh, you know, the coca leaf and all that stuff without it being, you know, stepped on a million different times and, and stuff. There are therapeutic properties of all, all those substances if they're used um, responsibly and, and personally. But I, I definitely think that uh, there is a huge uniting proper, uh, quality to cannabis. The only thing that I think with, with COVID that may go away, and I hope it doesn't, is this whole notion of I'm going to pass a joint to you and share it around the circle. I was out <laughs> with people. Everybody's got their own now. You, you're you're sucking on your vape, and then people got their own joint. They're afraid to share it. So hopefully we can get back into that whole sense of community and Everyone's got their own pre-roll or joint or vape, and they're just getting like blasted even more. Right? Yeah, exactly. You <laughs> Tolerance is going up. That's true. Uh, hey, I wanted to ask you. I, I see you. I see you uh, uh, constantly on jumping into uh, the lake, and you know, being being a cold. What's do you know what the exactly? It's that one. <laughs> What what what's the coldest uh, temperature you think if you even know this that you were jumping into in that in lake? Uh, Mid forties. Fuck. Uh, do you do you ever do like a Wim Hof breathing uh, and stuff? You do. Yeah, going in. That's yeah, good. I, I'm actually gonna, after this going to go down to the lake and jump in. I've been uh, a hermit in the house the last few days because yeah. of the smoke. So yeah, that lake is. Uh, it's breathtaking in all the good ways and super healing and beautiful sacred waters. Uh, you know, it's all glacial snowmelt that's yeah. in there and it's in constant motion, you know, 365 days a year. So it's always churning up and uh, there's not much pollution 
up here or, you know, other inputs because it's a high alpine lake at 6,300 feet in elevation. So that's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful, sacred place that has provided me with so much inspiration to my life. I don't think it's been hard for me to move or go anywhere else because of the body of water, even like moving to Truckee, California, which is a large community in the Tahoe Truckee region. And it's 20 minutes away from the lake. Mm. And I'm like, I ah, too far. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm blessed to live South facing view and have the lake within walking distance of my house. So it's amazing. Yeah. Well, after, after uh, we get some uh, COVID uh, uh, or, or be- between variants, uh, Delta, Theta, Alpha, whatever Greek alphabet they're going to come up, maybe I'll, I'll uh, eventually come visit. I know I threatened to do that a couple of times, but. You, Anya, yeah, and Kimberly, Kimberly yeah, Dillon. Yeah. yeah. Kimberly, I still, uh, if she's ever listens, it's like, I'll send her a message once in a while. I'm like, there's snow. I know she yeah. wants to come for snow. She's like, teach me how to do nature. <laughs> yeah, I know. She's all the same thing. We'll, we'll come up together. We'll yeah. come up together. She Trade uh, trade you how to do n- nature for, you know, some marketing. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. <laughs> so, Speaking of, uh, do you remember how we met? I do. So it was it was an event that uh, our friends were were having. Uh, I and Sasha was at that census census event, right? And yeah, were- it was um, in the Malibu Hills. Yeah. I and Sasha had it, and it was called. It was basically like a sensory experience with cannabis, taste, right. smell, touch, uh, and we had the tasting panel. That's right. And we had, uh, you were at the table. Uh, there was, was like 12 people and we had placemats of, we made edibles at that time and y'all were blindfolded and you had to taste the hold and taste. It was like a mindful exercise. And that was a great event. That was, that was fun. A great event. Doing those early, early, it seems like forever. It wasn't long ago. And yeah, um, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I got your phone number and mm. When I went back to Grass Valley, I was working on my farm and I remember calling you. We set up a call and we talked. You told me about yeah. that raid at the dispensary yeah. Yeah. and a little bit about what you were doing with like uh, you were a cannabis consultant and you worked with you know patients that were referred to you to find them their medicine through the dispensaries. And I remember you used this great analogy that I, I still use today is uh, when when you're in the as a consumer of cannabis and you're a little bit green and, and rudimentary and you're being curious about this, that uh, we've been so attached to the names of strains, Blue Dream, Sour Diesel, OG, Cookies, Biscotti, Sherbert, Wedding Cake, all the things, Ice Cream Cake, all, all the ones. And we, w- the consumers get attached to the brand names. We're a brand culture. Right, yeah. Nike's your shirt, whatever. Uh, but it's really not about the the name of the the strain. It's what's what's in the strain, and that was a big part of what Michael was teaching me. So I was like, this guy, someone I want to stay in touch with. He gets it. And you told me a story about a patient that you were treating. I believe they had um, severe migraines, and Blue Dream really helped with their migraines and this woman uh, went to get the blue dream at the dispensary in her community and they were out of blue dream 
So she went to this dispensary in the next community and got Blue Dream, and it actually intensified her migraines. Likely, if we wanted to extrapolate that from an anecdotal science guy space, <clears throat> it probably wasn't Blue Dream. It was <clears throat> labeled, and I've mis- I've relabeled things all the time. Yeah. I've re- I repurpose a bunch of content now in yeah. my world. <laughs> but I used to repurpose a bunch of bags of cannabis to make it, to make it more marketable. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, when we told, when you told me that story, I was like, Len is someone I want in my Rolodex. I appreciate it. You you understood it. You you got it. Right. Yeah. No, that, that, that's a great story. Yeah. I, I think that people don't understand the ramifications of what that does. Because when we had our dispensaries too, we were like, oh, what are we low on? It kind of smells like, uh, you know, Blue Dream or a Sour Diesel. Eh, but it's fine. But it's, but it's not, you know? And then uh, those little, little nuances, they make the difference to the actual patients and the people who need this as a, as a therapy. So definitely glad uh, you brought that up. Um, all right. I'm going to ask you three questions uh, get ready. They're really, really difficult. So, like, put on your thinking cap. Uh, just All let right. you know when you're ready. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Deep breath. <laughs> uh, please describe your first experience with cannabis. Do you remember? Uh, my friend, Ryan Ordway, he came by my house after school, and we played in a band together. He's like, look what I have, Chappie. I have Kind Bud. We used to call it Kind Bud back on the East Coast. <laughs> of I'm like 15 years old. And he throws a, in a Ziploc bag and Kind Bud, it was like green, super lime green, you know, like sour diesel green, lime green. And we took a walk and we smoked this Kind Bud. And I got so stoned, like the most stoned I've ever been. And we jammed down in my basement on guitars. And then I had to go to my guitar lesson and I couldn't even function at my guitar lesson. And my guitar teacher was, he obviously knew what was going on, but after it was, I had a lot of anxiety too, because I like, I could, I was in a small room studio space. And I I actually was thinking about him the other day. I'm like, I I would love to find my old guitar teacher and have a good laugh over that. You know, 15 years old on that guitar I showed you earlier and just was useless. And he's like, next time you come here, try to come a little bit, you know, more clear headed. <laughs> <laughs> no come stone. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's probably, you know, smoking and yeah, it enhances his playing, man. <laughs> but he just knew. Yeah. That, that one hit me pretty hard. That was like the first time I got really stoned. I had, I had like, we would like find random plants or like pull leaves off plants yeah. and try to smoke that, you know, as kids. And that was the first time that I got yeah. the kind bud, man. That'll, that'll do. Remember it. the old kind bud, green bud? Of course. Of course. Kind yeah. bud, LA weed. Yeah. We, we, I wasn't lucky enough to get LA weed uh, at that time. We, our kind bud, the kindest that we would get was like the BC stuff that we were getting. Oh yeah, that was that was the kind bud we were getting, and uh, and then you know I, I knew this guy. They they cultivated some really good stuff in upstate Pennsylvania, so we get some really nice green stuff. But uh, yeah, it was hard to come by. Um, being a music guy, I'm a music guy uh, as well. 
Uh, do you remember what was the first concert that you attended? Uh, Mr. Rod Stewart himself. Nice. Uh, Old Orchard Beach in Maine. I was eight years old. My parents took me and uh, Rod Stewart used to be a almost uh, semi-pro soccer player. Mm. And I remember he was part of his encore. He was kicking a bunch of soccer balls out into the crowd. And I almost caught one and it went over my hands and the guy behind uh, me caught it and he didn't give it to me and I'm still traumatized. Oh, Rod, Damn. if you're listening to this, send me an autographed soccer ball. Yeah, please. Send, send Brian an autographed soccer ball. That's, uh, do you remember what, what was the first album you ever bought? Yeah. Um, Blood, Sugar, Sex, Magic by Red Hot Chili Peppers. And it's still one of my all-time favorite albums. Produced by Rick Rubin, I believe. Produced by Rick Rubin, yes. the master. Exactly. Lives right up in, in Malibu. And that is a, there's a documentary on that whole process. Of yeah, there is. When he got them. He, he's such an incredible way of pulling out the creativity from... Yeah. Shangri-La, I believe. Shangri-La. I, I think it burned down. Uh, Shangri-La, Shangri-La. Uh, or yeah, was that his house? That was his house. Shangri-La, actually, uh, the only thing that burned, I think, was the trees there. Shangri-La existed. But I think where he recorded the album for the Chili Peppers was the house that he had in Laurel Canyon. Okay. Uh, so that was the, the house where he recorded. Uh, Great documentary songs. there, Echo in the Canyon. Yes, absolutely. I, I've been watching a lot of the music documentaries. I just watched Clive Davis documentary, the David Geffen. It's a good one. It's just all that stuff, man. I love that stuff too. Me too. Just getting into the the factoids and the the culture and the myths of like what made some of the greatest artists who they are. I'm actually listening right now to on Audible. Uh, it's the the Tom Petty book, but it's it's basically the conversation with Tom Petty's uh, uh, wife and going over, yeah, she goes over the experiences that she had with him. It's really, really interesting. You know, such a, yeah, such a profound guy and such a shame, the this whole drug thing, how it takes, uh, you know, Prince and time. We can go on and on about that. Uh, if they, yeah, if they only looked at, uh, you know, plant medicine as an alternative, could have had those people still with us. Um, so what has cannabis meant in your life? What has it meant? Mm -hmm. Or what does it mean? What it means to me is a, a, a well of healing, an unlimited place of creativity, a, a means of living, a, a, a means of finding my calling in my world, mm. a, a place of connection, and a place that I've, uh, something that I've used to, you know, um, create revenue for myself and friends and, and family and, and create a life. Uh, that's not the only thing, but, um, and hopefully uh, create an impact for the rest of the world. That's great. Love that. All right. Bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. <laughs> I had a twin bed. <laughs> It was my my uncle's bed, Uncle Vinny. <laughs> I have an Uncle Vinny. Of course you do. Vincenzo Martello. <laughs> uh, you want a knuckle sandwich? Hey, salami <laughs> breath, get over here. You want a knuckle sandwich? Uh, and I had my 
all my extreme skiing posters on the wall, the Glenn Plake with the big Mohawk and Scott Schmidt and they were skiing Squaw Valley. That's what got me to move out to Tahoe along with my parents. But, uh, uh, my trophies from, I ran track in high school and I had trophies and plaques all over the wall. I was like, kind of like that multi multi-use kid. You know, I, I played in the band. I hung out with the stoners. I, ran track captain of the track team uh, honors uh i got accepted to college you know early acceptance and i feel i still am like that i have a wide group of friends and can navigate through different communities and and, uh, such but uh, my room is almost still the same every time i go back there my mom has her like sewing uh station set up and uh, I have all my books there and I seem to always come back from a visit with like three, four new books that I somehow didn't see the last time I was back there or they just didn't inspire me when I saw them. And I'm like, just consistently bring stuff back to California with me. Yeah, I do that with the albums. I left, <clears throat> I collect vinyl. I left a whole bunch of vinyl back in Philly uh, when I moved. So every single time I go back, besides I have a ton of vinyl here uh, too, but when I go back, I grab like a handful of that and put in my bags and there's still a bunch left over there. But yeah. My dad has all his vinyl collection too. That My dad's a super giving guy, but I think he's been a little bit hesitant. You know, really That's the treasure. The Led Zeppelin two out vinyl <laughs> one three houses of the Holy Zoso Jimi Hendrix yeah. Allman yeah. Brothers the double live yeah. at Fillmore yeah I got them all man all the ones you mentioned uh, I have I have all those vinyl they are the first record I ever bought myself was uh, uh, the four Led Zeppelin four and I bought that. Before I even got into two, I didn't know because I listened, you know, Stairway to Heaven. I'm like, oh, I want the album with Stairway and, and Rock and Roll and Black Dog. And when I discovered Les Zeppelin 2, then I moved to one and, and three. I was like, oh, my God, this, that. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's Led Zeppelin 1 doesn't suck either. I mean, they're uh, like 20 years old, 1967. Amazing. Like, listen to just the, just the scrappy guitar work that Jimmy Page has thrown down and just John Bonham just smashing the drums. Like, yeah, it's, it's amazing. But like when, when you really dig into like the stuff they, they took from, you know, Willie Dixon and those guys, it, it definitely should have at least credited uh, those guys in the beginning. I'm not sure if it was Jimmy Page or, you know, I don't know, the record company, whoever it was, but I, I think yeah. they... I mean, it's all settled now, but I think that, that Led Zeppelin's happen. canceled, Len. <laughs> I guess like, no I'll put away my albums, man. That's it. I, I can't be friends with you. You have a Led Zeppelin album there, <laughs> and they didn't give credit to the old bluesmen. That's true. Not not a lot of them did. Uh, yeah, for sure. Hey, brother, where can people find out about you, about Medicine Box, or anything else? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, really active on LinkedIn, Brian Chaplin, uh, underscore Brian Chaplin. Yeah, I love your LinkedIn uh, stuff that you're doing on, on Terps and all that stuff. I think it's really important to communicate this uh, to everyone. Thanks for noticing. Mm-hmm. Thanks for chiming in and yeah. contributing to that, that content. And uh, Justin, one of my collaborators with Medicine Box is a, a great researcher and writer. And we come up with those themes and mm-hmm. really dives in and then I repurpose them. So 
Yeah, Brian Chaplin, LinkedIn, underscore Brian Chaplin, Instagram, uh, at medicine underscore box is the brand page. Medicinebox.green is uh, 243 blogs on there. I counted yesterday. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of blogging and heavy content that is really well-researched, well-thought-out. And then uh, medicineboxwellness.com is where you can find our e-commerce uh, products uh, that you can order through the shopping cart there, 0.3% THC levels uh, <laughs> derived from hemp. But we use a variety of other cannabinoids like CBG, CBC, CBN. And then, of course, the brilliant way of how we put products together uh, passed down from Michael was using other uh, botanicals in those blends and also medicinal mushrooms like reishi, chaga, shiitake, shiitake yeah. mushrooms. So um, it's a great line. Well, cool, brother. I really appreciate your time, uh, your contribution, not only to the industry, to the podcast, and just uh, it's great seeing you. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, getting together soon. Looking forward to coming down to still in Sherman Oaks on the east side. No, Studio City, close enough. But uh, yeah, Anya, Anya was in Sherman Oaks. Yeah, yeah. Well, close. Uh, coming down so I can go to brunch with you, but end up in a completely different area of LA. <laughs> at the same named restaurant and going, Oh, that's what happens when you take a guy out of the mountains. <laughs> Did that really happen? Yes. Yeah. You really <laughs> I I mean, we're still here. Like, I'll see like, you I'm here too. I don't see you. <laughs> I'm here. Where are you guys? Oh yeah. Adventures in LA. Adventures in LA. Cool, man. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Chicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.